Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For couples with young children... Dividing up the parental load can be tricky. Whose turn is it to change the nappy? Who's getting out of bed when the baby cries? And perhaps hardest of all, who is going to put their career on hold to take care of the kids? Most of the time, the answer is the same. It's mum. Almost half of non-working mothers say they would prefer to work if they could arrange suitable childcare. For many women, a career break becomes a career end. In the new Chancellor's spring budget, Jeremy Hunt acknowledged that the burden falls disproportionately on women and announced plans to cut childcare costs. Today, I announce that in eligible households where all adults are working at least 16 hours, we will introduce 30 hours of free childcare, not just for three and four-year-olds, but for every single child over the age of nine months. It's a start, but the cost of childcare isn't the only problem driving parental inequality. Parental leave is a disgrace because the rates of pay are a disgrace, and mothers have been saying this for so long, but, you know, statutory parental leave is half of minimum wage. I mean, what does that say about how, as a society, we value looking after children or the sacrifices that mothers typically make? In a new book, Paul Morgan Bentley investigates the cultural and institutional reasons that the mum is still assumed to be the primary parent and asks, is there another way? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, the equal parent. Why is childcare still a mum's job? I am Paul Morgan-Bentley. I am head of investigations at The Times, and I'm also the author of The Equal Parent, a book about how men can and should do more to look after their children. Paul, how did you get the idea to write your book? So my husband and I, we had our son Solly through surrogacy in the UK. And before having Solly, it was definitely an expectation of ours that we'd face some hostility or homophobia 
as a gay couple with a child. And the assumption that we definitely had was that that would kind of frame our experience as parents. And actually, we had Solly, and to our faces at least, people have just been lovely and just treated us like everyone else. We don't feel particularly exceptional. We pick them up from nursery, we do the usual things. People don't say weird things to us all the time. But an experience that really kind of smacked us in the face immediately and has continued to be one that we experience all the time is just a very low expectation of fathers, gay or otherwise, anyone. And you have a newborn baby and you go to doctor's appointments and there's a real surprise that there's a dad there and you get loads of praise. We've got used to getting loads of praise for doing really basic things with our son. And it's really easy to assume that we've reached a good place with gender equality. But actually, you have a child and you're transported to this much more old-fashioned existence where there is just no expectation of equality at all. I really wanted to explore that more. I wanted to find out more about it. You know, why is it that we expect equality at work and there is no such expectation at home still? Tell us the story about how you became a parent. So my husband, Robin, and I, we met in 2014. We really kind of bonded over the experience that we'd both had separately when we were younger. And I think this is common for lots of gay people. I certainly had it when I was in my teens and really going through a mourning period and trying to kind of come to terms with my sexuality. And a huge part of that being, I probably won't have children. I did feel like I'd gone through a kind of grieving process for parenthood. Um, so suddenly this kind of being together and actually you do see that there are ways for gay people to have children or lots of non-traditional families to have children. And so we kind of wanted to explore the different ways. So we initially looked at adoption and we looked at surrogacy and Initially, we were actually against surrogacy because I think we, like lots of people, just assumed it was something that very wealthy celebrities did in America, that there were lots of ethical concerns, lots of money involved, and were the women really doing it because they wanted to? But then actually a friend and a former colleague at the Times announced that he was having twins actually through surrogacy in the UK and told me all about how it worked. So surrogacy in the UK is legal, but it's altruistic. It's not commercial. You cannot pay a woman to carry a child for you. And those protections are in place to stop women being coerced into doing this. A woman who might have an abusive partner who wants to make money by her carrying a child. It's supposed to discourage that. So we joined an organisation called Surrogacy UK. It's a not-for-profit organisation in the UK. And they don't match potential parents with surrogates. What they do is they just kind of host social events and they have an online forum. And you go to these events and they're kind of bizarre. You, you know, you turn up kind of thinking, oh, is this going to be like speed dating? What's this going to be? And the first one we went to, there were actually no surrogates there looking to meet couples. But we learned quite quickly that it was, that kind of, in a way, wasn't what it was about. It was about a community. And then we kept going to these events. At the same time, we went to an IVF clinic and started the process of creating embryos with an anonymous egg donor. And the law in the UK is also very specific about that in that she chose to be anonymous, but when our son is 18, he can have identifying details about her and try and find her, and we would totally support that. Eventually, after going to a number of these events, we met Rachel and James, her husband, and we hit it off really quickly. But the organisation works on a basis, rightly, that the potential parents cannot make the first move. You can't say to women, will you carry a baby for me? the kind of ethos rightly is that the women should always be in control and so you wait and eventually you hope that you get this call from the organization saying someone wants to get to know you a bit better so that's what happened we got the call 
What was Rachel's motivation? Why did she want to be a surrogate? Her sister had been a surrogate and she had seen her sister go through the process and how proud she was after carrying this boy and was really inspired by it. And that was really kind of reassuring to us at the time because she wasn't a friend of ours before. She independently wanted to be an altruistic surrogate in the UK. She also talked about how she and her husband definitely didn't want any more children, but she kind of missed being pregnant. And so it kind of, it suited her. After meeting, you go through a getting to know process and the organisation doesn't want you to go forward until you've had at least three months of dedicated getting to know each other. And we spent loads of time together and you go through very serious questions about things that could happen during a surrogate pregnancy to make sure you're on the same page. And if you're not, you should not go forward. So things like, would you abort if you found out about certain conditions? And thankfully, we were all on the same page. You got to know each other. You made sure you were on the same page. She gets pregnant. Tell us about the birth. The birth, I suddenly had moments where I was just like, I cannot believe that she is doing this for us. You know, it's unbelievable that she's going through this much pain for us. We were all in the room. So Rachel was there on the hospital bed. Her husband, James, was next to her supporting her. And then Solly was born and it was the most magical moment. I cut the cord We were all in the room together. I did skin-to-skin contact with Solly, and that was just amazing and beautiful. And Robin had Solly on his chest, and Rachel cuddled Solly, and James cuddled Solly, and we were all crying. And it, it really was a really magical time. You were there at the birth. And my husband was there when I gave birth to my children. He was able to spend the night at the hospital. But in your book, you talk about how that isn't necessarily always the case. No, so a huge problem in the UK and in many countries is fathers being kicked out straight after the birth. And actually, after the birth, it's a real opportunity to start sharing the load, you know, and and dads are told to go home and get some rest and I did freedom of information requests as part of the book that I've written and most hospitals in the UK fathers are only allowed in during visiting hours in one case that was one hour maximum of one hour per day see I did not know this I didn't know how lucky I was to have my husband there but you're right it's it's where the whole process of parenting begins and if you're starting off with this is the mother's domain of responsibility then that sets the course really doesn't it And I find it kind of unbelievable because actually, if you take a step back, the person who has been through the pregnancy and then childbirth or cesarean section, actually, it should be so important that she has someone there, whether that be a partner or a parent or a friend who is there to help. And it kind of that was part of the experience that inspired the book, that it starts on that first night. And I wanted to look into the science. You know, there are lots of studies that show how important those initial periods are and That carries on from that first day. That expectation of inequality starts immediately and carries on. Let's talk about the book now. Um, There's so much interesting material in this book because, of course, you've got your two hats on. You've got your personal experience. You've got your journalist experience in it. And you talk about this interesting concept that I had not heard of before about uh, the concept of a biological parent as distinct from a, a genetic parent necessarily. Explain what a biological parent is. Well, so one of the things I wanted to answer in writing this book was what's the importance of having a genetic relationship to a child? And 
this is of particular interest to me because I'm not a genetic parent. It was my husband's sperm that was used, so I'm not a genetic parent. But as a parent, I felt very kind of biologically a parent. I felt totally different. I was kind of waking up first when our baby cried at night. I felt intensely bonded to our baby. And so actually, you know, genetics wasn't important to us in theory. And then in writing this book, I kind of wanted to understand as well, you know, is is sex important to parenting? So can dads be equal parents? But also, what about if you're not a genetic dad or or mum? And actually, the science is really clear now. Yes, women through pregnancy and childbirth do get a rush of oxytocin, the bonding hormone. But actually, when scientists have measured new fathers' oxytocin levels, they were very surprised to find that after spending lots of time with their children, oxytocin rises in new fathers very high, but actually so high that it's the same as new mothers. This idea that there's a more intense connection with mothers is actually not true. It very quickly catches up as long as the men are actually there and doing it. So it's all about the actual just doing it, being there, holding your child, feeding your child, playing with your child, changing their nappies. And then the other science that's really interesting in the in the last few decades has been brain imaging work. They've scanned new mothers and new fathers' brains, and there does seem to be this biological change in mothers. Their amygdala, the part of the brain that respond to panic and, and urgency and anxiety, is usually four times the size in new mothers compared to new fathers. But actually, when scientists have scanned gay dads' brains, they have found that the primary caregiver, when they scanned the brains, they looked just like new mothers. Their amygdala had also quadrupled in size. And that kind of sounds amazing, but gay men do not have some kind of magical power. All that is, is if you're lying in bed and you know the buck stops with you, your brain responds and you feel that panic and you get up. And I would have previously described myself as a non-biological parent. Um, and now I call myself a non-genetic parent because uh, one of the scientists that I spoke to, who's this brilliant anthropologist, Sarah bleffer she said to me that you are a biological dad. You're very biologically a dad because your biology has changed since becoming a dad. And I'm obviously biased, but I found that really beautiful and got quite emotional when she said that. What about parental leave? Tell us about that. So I think as gay parents, you can be massively freed from societal expectations. And as two men coming to parenthood, and we both had careers that we massively cared about and had invested huge amounts of time in, we never would have considered one of us taking the full year and the other one not. We also felt quite strongly that we shouldn't deny the other one the opportunity to spend all that time with our our son. So we we just split it down the, the middle. We were off together for six weeks and then I spent the rest of the first half of the year off and then my husband took off over for the second half of the year. But we worked it out literally to the day that we were off the same number of days. And parental leave in the UK doesn't work. There have been attempts to change it and we have shared parental leave. So in theory, mums and dads or whoever the partnership is can share a year of leave or you know, nine months of statutory paid leave. In reality, very few dads take it up. Mm. Parental leave is a disgrace anyway, because the rates of pay are a disgrace. Mm. And mothers have been saying this for so long. But, you know, statutory parental leave is half of minimum wage. I mean, what does that say about how as a society we value looking after children or the sacrifices that mothers typically make? And the societal expectations are also so ingrained that when researchers have looked into it, even when there's a straight couple and the woman earns more than the man, she will typically take much more parental leave. And when you look at other countries, the only ones that have really successfully managed to tackle this and have men taking 
much more of their parental leave entitlements and women who want to go back to work being able to go back to work are the ones where there's an allocation for mothers and a separate allocation for fathers. And if you offer that to fathers, they take it. One of the reasons that is often given why women have to take the parental leave is breastfeeding. We know that the government advice in this country is you should babies should be exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. I mean, how does that work in terms of equal parenting? There definitely has to be a massive appreciation of the fact that women are going to take parental leave. And this is why it's important to have earmarked leave for mothers and fathers. Mothers' leave is really important, partly for breastfeeding, but also lots of mothers don't breastfeed, but they're still recovering from pregnancy and childbirth. And, you know, that has to be protected. And there has to be an understanding that it's very unlikely you're going to parent equally in those first six months if the mother's breastfeeding. There are some things that can help, you know, things like during a night feed, instead of the dads going and sleeping in a spare room, that they wake up and they burp, you know, because feeding a baby is not just about the feeding. I loved this when I read this in your book. And can I just say it made me feel sad. It was such a revolution in thought because, you know, I breastfed my children. But the idea that actually there's a possibility that the other half could go and do everything other than feed the baby and change the nappy and bring the baby to you. And you could, you know, it was such a revolutionary idea, really. And it's not just the physical work of waking up in the night, which is annoying, but also so much about parenting is the mental load. Yeah. And if, if you're doing breastfeeding and you feel like, well, that means I have to do everything, actually by a partner saying, I'm going to respond to the baby, I'll pick up the baby, I'll bring the baby to you when you're finished feeding, give me a nudge and I will take that baby, I'll burp the baby, I'll change the baby, I'll put the baby back in the crib. That's huge. And it is a real opportunity for men, particularly if your partner's been breastfeeding, to take some responsibility and to get really involved in feeding. And actually, when you think about it, milk feeding, either by bottle or breast, doesn't actually last that long in a child's life. But if you gain confidence in preparing food for your child and you start taking on that responsibility, that lasts forever. Coming up, how the messages telling girls and boys what they should be might narrow their ideas about who they should become as adults and ultimately as parents. I'm Megan Agnew, a news features writer at the Sunday Times. That means I might go from interviewing pop stars to sitting in courtrooms covering the human impacts of crime to tracking down the two women known as the Rolex Rippers. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What did you learn about childcare and the process of finding someone to look after Solly when your parental leave ended? So we sent Solly to nursery from 11 months, a combination of nursery and grandparents helping out. And we felt quite strongly beforehand that we think this will be fine for him. And if we don't, then we'll reassess. Something we, as a gay male couple, wanted to fight against was this usual decision about one of you sacrificing your career for a few years. And you speak to lots of new mothers who will say, well, there was no point in me carrying on work because my salary didn't cover the childcare Mm. fees. And that feels bizarre to me. Because neither of us would have said that, even if our salaries were different. Because what you should be doing, I think, is thinking how much are the childcare fees, how much is our family income, and what's best for us all long term. You know, it's not why is it the mother's salary that has to cover the childcare fees? And yet it is incredibly expensive. And you spoke to someone in your book, there's a very moving story of a woman who was was faced with some incredibly difficult choices. Tell us about her. Yeah, Carly. I met her at an event, actually, in Parliament. She was speaking about being a single parent. And I, I met up with her afterwards to talk about it more. And it really showed how challenging the system can be. And she has a managerial role at a charity. She's a single parent. And so she needed childcare for her son. Initially, it worked because her parents could help her out. But when they stopped being able to, the combination of the nursery fees, her rent for really basic accommodation, she needed universal credit to boost her salary and to keep her in work. But even because the universal credit, when you start it, there's a delay in getting the first funds. And then it came in later in the month, whereas the nursery fees had to pay at the beginning. And she had these awful decisions. She kind of told me about this time when she was going to her son's nursery and begging them basically to see if they would change the date so that she could afford it after the universal credit payment came in. Um, And Robin and I are very lucky and we recognise that we're very privileged because we can afford it just about, Mm. but we both work full-time in relatively high-paid jobs. And if you are a single mother like Carly, who even with a good managerial job at a charity, it's it's just incredibly difficult. And she was having to pay a huge amount of her salary on How childcare. did she manage then? Well, she talks about how she's still paying off the credit cards. And even though she struggled so much, she talks about how in a way she was privileged because she had her parents to rely on sometimes if she needed them. And some people don't have that. In my book, in the acknowledgements, the final thanks 
goes to my mother-in-law and I say, without whom every page of this book would be blank because I could not have carried on as a freelance journalist and developed the idea if she hadn't got on a train two days a week and given us free childcare for, for two days a week, I would have had to have got a job to make it sustainable. And there's a huge, it's interesting you say that about grandparents. There is a huge societal thing going on now where grandparents do a huge amount of childcare now, much more than the previous generation because they have to pick up from where kind of society is failing new parents. Well, I love my mother-in-law. There you go. <laughs> um, let's talk about health services. Why is it always the mum that's called when a baby needs medical checkups or when a baby is having medical treatment? But these are one of the things I wanted to answer in the book, which is why do all my female friends tend to get the medical calls? And there's a reason straight after childbirth, obviously, rightly, services want to check in on the mum and the baby. But there's no expectations that dads will be called. And that carries on throughout children's upbringing. And actually, we found that repeatedly, if we got the calls, there was massive confusion from the services that there was a man answering. What we found out is that NHS systems typically only link the mother to a child's birth records. And what that means is, yes, that's probably very important for the first few months, but it means longer term, even if women are working full time, they're always going to get that call. And it's part of this societal kind of expectation that even though we have equality at work, or we want equality at work, at home really parenting is primarily women's responsibility. Institutions think of the mother as the default parent but then I think of, of my children's school and how whenever there are events like, you know, year four maths curriculum explained and I go along to that, I look around the room and it's all women. And it's not the school saying mums come along. There is something that we are culturally reinforcing within our own families as well, I think, which is that, you know, when you're dealing with doctors and schools, that's the mum's business to get really heavily involved. I mean, do you think that there, there is as much a cultural pressure as an institutional pressure? Well, let's take a step back. Like you say that and I nod along and I think, of course, it's all mums because we know that experience and we see those rooms and we're often the only dads in the mm. room. But why? If in our workplaces there are women, rightly as well as men, why aren't men in those rooms? And why when women often talk about this, that they'll be at work and their phone will be ringing incessantly because there's a problem at school or nursery, even if they have specifically written down the dad's name. And you see it on social media, actually, quite often, you'll have women complaining about this issue. And my favourite one, actually, was a woman who wrote that her daughter had told the school to call the dad. There was a problem at school and she said, call my dad. My mum's unavailable. She's working, but my dad will respond. And they, they wouldn't listen to her. And they said, we have to call your mum. So they kept calling her, kept calling her, and she couldn't answer. And then all these people were commenting under the tweet saying, well, why couldn't you respond? And like having a real go at her. And then she replied at one point and said, well, I was in a courtroom. I just physically couldn't answer the phone. And there was one account who just kept coming back at her and saying, well, you could have asked the judge. Why didn't you do this? You could have picked up the phone. And she just wrote back, I was the judge. <laughs> and we celebrate when women have these jobs and become judges, but then we also expect that judge to pick up the phone to her daughter's school, even if her husband's at home and can answer it. In the book, you look at gendering of young children, how it starts very, very young, and how that connects to parenting equality. And I found this very interesting. I've got a boy and a girl who are very different. So first of all, talk through what studies have shown about this. What do we know about the gendering of very young children? 
If you look into the studies around the gendering of very young children and the toys and the clothes and how we treat boys and girls differently, just instinctively, it's really depressing reading. And you have studies, for instance, there's one that really stayed with me where they were 11-month-old babies and they were looking at crawling ability, but also the parents and whether they thought their children were going to be brave. And initially the researchers were not studying gender bias, but then the results were so stark that it framed the whole study and they kind of rethought the whole thing. And essentially the mothers of girls were massively underestimating their crawling ability and their bravery. And the mothers of boys were overestimating their ability and their bravery. So early on, those societal expectations are playing out and we're underestimating what girls can do. And it kind of makes you think, in what other areas constantly are we underestimating girls? And there was another study that really stuck with me, which was about girls and how they internalise this stuff and how it frames how they see themselves. And, And in this study, children were told a story and in the story, one of the characters was described as being really, really smart. Then afterwards, the children were shown pictures and they had to point to the picture of the person they thought was the character. In the pictures, there were men and women. And at five, boys and girls both tended to pick people of their own gender, which was kind of an expected finding. But actually, by six and seven, the girls were much more likely to pick a man as the very, very clever character. And then also, it was found that they were starting to kind of avoid certain activities that they thought weren't for them as Mm. girls which is very depressing. And for me as a mother of a boy and a girl, it's something I wrestle with because I think my children are very different. And, you know, my daughter, who came second, grew up in a house full of a wide variety of toys, but she didn't gravitate towards the buses and the taxis like my son did. She's not that into dolls, but she was always very into teddies and playing with teddies. And is this just another way that we're messing up our kids then? Are there no inherent differences between boys and girls? I don't think that's right. There are obvious differences between boys and girls, and it's actually really important that boys and girls understand biological differences and understand the world around them. But it's about not limiting them, I think. You know, if your son really likes football, like my son does, we encourage that. But equally, he really likes bright colours. We're just trying to encourage what he likes and trying not to be too judgmental about it. But there are commercial reasons, aren't there, why why we have these expectations, and you explore that in your book. When researchers have looked at catalogues, actually... It's not just that there's been no progress in this area. There was less of this separation by gender actually in the kind of 1970s than by the 1980s and 90s. And the theory is that you can sell two of the same toy if you have two different colours, one for boys and one for girls. So it stops handing down. If you have a bike and you very clearly market the pink ones for girls and the blue ones for boys, then they have to buy a second bike. My husband once went into a shop to get wellies for my son. The ones he liked were navy blue with hearts. And the person in the shop said, oh no, didn't you say that it was for your son? We were kind of like, this is the symbol of love. Like, it's just a heart. You just reminded me, I was buying buying wellies for my son once and he wanted the pepper pig ones and the woman tried to sell me the ones with George on it with the dinosaur because they were for my son and yes, he shouldn't stuff. have a girl pig on his, on his wellies. And that person working in the shop, it doesn't mean any harm by it. Yeah. They're just trying to be helpful, but this stuff is really ingrained. Mm-hmm. Many of the things you talk about in your book are things that women have known for a long time and have sometimes been pointing out for a long time. Why do you think nothing has changed? 
it's incredibly frustrating. I, you know, I'm aware of that. And I think a huge problem is that women aren't in positions of power politically. And if you had a cabinet full of mothers, the childcare issue would probably be changed overnight. Is it policy or is it culture or is it both? It's both. And I think something that I can't speak to massively and I'm just trying to listen to is women talking about how hard it is after going through pregnancy and childbirth to let go in those moments and to allow your partner to take responsibility and to try and share the mental load. And it is this really tricky situation. And I understand that I experienced some of that, but I can't compare my experience to mother's experience. So I do just try and listen to that. And, you know, parenting equality won't be for everyone. If you don't want to live in that way, if you want more traditional roles, that's fine. But if you do want it and you do want to go to work as a man or a woman and not feel like you're shouldering all of the mental load, and a key thing is the mental load, then I do believe in finding a way to let go. In writing the book, I have become convinced that one-on-one time in charge of your children is really, really important. When you have that one-on-one time caring for your child by yourself, you develop really deep bonds. And, you know, we have our own ways of bonding with him and playing with him. And Robin has this ridiculous game he plays in the park with Solly, where they'll be swinging him on the swings and shouting animal noises and saying, what does a quiet duck say? And Solly will say, quack. And he'll say, (laughs) what is a loud horse saying he'll scream nay and <laughs> and then he started to move it on to kind of what does a shy and you know and he does all kind of imaginative games like that i'm a bit more physical with solly it's kind of naturally just who we are as people but i love kind of running around with him pretending to be different modes of transport which sounds completely ridiculous but you know saying oh what should we be now and he'll be like helicopter and he'll swing his arms over his head like propellers and run across the room and we'll end up giggling on the floor and i think That is the very basis of really deep relationships is having that one-on-one time as well as family time together. Okay, which one now? A helicopter. We're going to be a helicopter. Ready? Daddy! Okay, which one now? Not the helicopter. Let's do a different one. Yeah. Let's do a different one. Which one? Big pool. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Kleeman, and my guest, head of investigations at The Times and author of the book, The Equal Parent, Paul Morgan Bentley. It's in bookshops now. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel and Charlotte Alt. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please leave us a review. It'll help others find us. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. 
Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.